Welcome to Educating Susie, a podcast where I quite frankly will be indulging in my own curiosities about a variety of topics. Hopefully as I learn, you will be learning along with me. Topic 2, the refugee crisis in East Africa. In May 2018, I travelled to East Africa with my producer and friend Tessa Gork-Roger. You'll be hearing her pop up from time to time as she kept us on track and fully caffeinated. Just a quick side note, at the time of recording, the community-based organisation discussed in the upcoming interview was called Save World Trust. That has now been changed and is called Kintsuji. So if you want to donate to the organisation or find out a bit more, then please research Kintsuji or go to our Instagram for further information. I think it's worth mentioning when we decided to go to East Africa that we were very wary of our knowledge in the area. We were very wary of how dangerous it could be to young women travelling alone. Um, And my sister, fortunately, is quite experienced in East Africa and she puts us in touch with various people who might be able to help us when we're out there, especially as she works specifically with refugees. So she was able to help with the the CBOs, uh, the community-based organisations, the refugee-led charities and most importantly a fixer for us Mm -hmm. and someone who would be there to travel with us, who knows the area and can look after us a little bit. Enter Bahati, Mm -hmm. the world's loveliest man, so sweet, has one of the most heartbreaking stories we heard He was astonishing and it was wonderful meeting him in person. Like we spent a lot of time together, just us three. So we really bonded over that. He's hysterically funny. (laughs) But it was also really wonderful watching him in situ, uh, watching him run his organisation and just the... So he's always on his phone, which is something that we obviously deal with in in our country as well, usually with teenagers and Snapchat. Uh, But Bahati is always attached to his phone because there is always somebody who needs his help and he's always always there uh, whether that be helping a young family out with rent whether that be organizing the latest food or clothing drive he's always there as a shoulder to cry on and as somebody to listen to and because he's got such great translator skills he was able to get us stories that I don't think otherwise we would have gotten Oh, absolutely not. He facilitated, he absolutely shaped our experience. He facilitated so many journeys into the unknown for us. But because we were with him, we felt completely at ease. We knew wherever we were going, we would be okay because he was just wonderful. And especially as hearing him order an Uber was probably one of my favourite things. (laughs) He just, (laughs) he would just tell the Uber driver, look for the two Mazungus. Look for the two white girls at the side of the road. You can't miss them. And I mean, he wasn't wrong, but um, no, he was wonderful, but he comes, his story is just really worth just listening to. Actually, I don't think we can step on it at all. He's, he explains it so well and um, and it, it gives such insight into what it's like living as a refugee from where he started to where he is now. Please give it a listen. So Bahati, hello. Um, We spoke about yesterday it being so important to be able to tell your story and and be heard. 
Can you tell us in more detail your story of, of crossing and travelling and, and where you went and how it felt? You absolutely don't have to if you don't want to. I um, There's no problem of telling my story because uh, these things has to be heard and there's a lot, lot of story out there which has hidden the Fijia keeping them for themselves and uh, there's no one even to ask about them. So if I can go to my personal story, uh, I left Congo when I was a child. I was only 13 years with my ma mama during the journey. Then on the journey, my mother was caught and I as well. My mother was raped and killed in front of me. That's a memory that will never come out of my mind. After they killed my mama, I continued working with other people a lot. Very long journey in a forest, meeting with so many challenging things. So many people were dying in the, with hunger because I remember even I spent five days without even eating anything. And uh, later on, we arrived in, we were able to cross the border to Bonagana border. We, we crossed the border and arrived in Uganda. We did not know anybody in Uganda. We could not speak Uganda language. So it was very terrifying, very fear, very traumatizing. And then uh, when we are, I arrived in Kenya, it's when the things became very worse than what I was imagining because uh, I really did not know anybody in Kenya. I had no family. I no. I had no one to turn to. So I had to be in the street for like uh, more than a year and a half. On the street, what I was doing was just to ask people to give me something to eat, to ask people to to just have mercy on me. Because the challenge was I did not even know how to tell people because I could not communicate. <laughs> my English was very, I could not say a word in English, I could not speak Swahili, I could only speak French in my mother tongue. So what happened is that I started um, learning how to speak English to be able to communicate. Then I remember one day I went to a shop, then asked someone to, for a notebook. Then I took the notebook and then he was wondering of what this guy was asking for a notebook. Because <laughs> I knew what I wanted. And then I also later on got a pain. Then those were the only things I had. Then I was moving around, writing every single word I could see on the road. The name of the places, the name of the house, everything, every English word on the road I could write it down in the note, my notebook and then ask everyone around me, what's the meaning of this, what's the meaning of this, to make sure at least I have something to tell people. It was a long journey of teaching myself the English I'm speaking now to the point where I started communicating to people. But because of the way I was brought up in a Christian family, I was in the street, but there are some characters, behavior that I was not doing. Then that was really impressing people, seeing someone in the street who, could not, who cannot steal from people, who is not. Uh, and even if, because I used to carry luggages from the market called Kikomba, helping people to carry their luggages. But when I'm carrying their luggages, then they're like, I'm very polite, I'm very kind, I'm very nice. And then they're like, this is not usual for a street boy. <laughs> you get. And then sometimes maybe they have, because uh, I used, used like to walk first, and then maybe the person whom I was carrying his luggage has stayed behind. Then he just found me somewhere waiting for him. He's like, this guy is even serious, he's even waiting for me. And even he asked me to go and get change, I go and get change and bring him the balance. Then they could not believe that, because I needed a m money. If he want to give him 1,000 Kenyan shillings, then he go and change and get 100 and give him the 900,000. And he's like, this is unusual. So one day a guy approached me after observing me for quite a while. He approached me and asked me questions and said, who are you? And then I told him who I am. 
I explained to him all my life. And then, of course, that time I was really completely disorganized in my mind, and I really wanted to kill myself even three times. It didn't work. <laughs> I don't know why. Maybe that's why I'm here to get today. And then I, I was taken to by that guy to one of the organizations called RCK to go through counseling. To they helped me a lot. I remember my counselor's name was Diana. She was very nice. She really could not believe what I went through after telling, taking her through my whole journey of uh, the disaster I went through. She starting the counseling process with me. We are meeting like once, once a week. Then I even ask her to be coming to the office sometime just for, for just my psychological just to come in and be somewhere peaceful because I used to come from the street to counseling, then back to the street. Then they had not even a way to support me to get a shelter or even get a foster family. It was very, very, very bad. Of course, that was after I was already turning 18 at that time. So after I finished my session, it's when I realized that I can still be someone. And I realized my potential. I realized that I can really change my life and if I continue sitting down and pitying myself recalling my history and starting pitying them or even uh, having a, a positive or a negative uh, uh, attitude of toward my story then it's going to affect my entire life and I will end up dying and that's not going to help me at all so I started changing a way of thinking believing that I'm going to change so I I um, was called by RCK after I finished my session to come and, and attend training. That was a community-based counseling. They wanted to train me on using my personal experience to empower other refugees, to train other refugees. So I went to a training to a hotel. I remember that was, hotel was Nomad. It was my first day from the street to the hotel. When people talk about the street, people don't understand what it means being the street. The street it means you are being rent on, you eat nothing, you are, when, when it's training, everyone is running on his house, you just look for where there's a balcony like this, you stay there. When the soldier come and tell you to run away, you just go, because sometimes they think you are a robber, you are coming to rob. So it's, it's one of the most bad memorial I will ever forget in my life. So that's how I came from. Then I was taken to a hotel. Then I saw another, instantly I saw a different world. The first time I ate uh, good food, it was my first time after like more than two years and a half here in Kenya, it was my first time to eat food. I was eating like a piece of cake, piece of chapati, piece of mandazi from just good people. But for the first time I ate, very nice food and I was very happy. I stayed there for an entire week being educated on counseling and then I started working in Kasarani as a community based counselor. So I started talking to refugees about uh, what they went through using my personal experience to inspire them, to, to show them that the best thing they can do to change their lives. That's how I, I started getting connection with other organizations because I became like a, a focal point with you to UNHCR in, within my community. So I, I, with what I was doing, after getting my job, I, I was recording my story and, and remember what I was wishing when I was dying with hunger. 
then I was now one what I'm going I'm earning I need to share it with other people I need to make sure at least one refugee or two refugees eat from my salary because that's what I was wishing when I was suffering that's what happened so I became a very good friend to refugees of course I understand them because I know what is hunger because I've been there I know what is stress because I've been stressful I know what is lack of shelter, I know how to be an orphan means, so I know everything. So you don't even need to come and explain me a lot for me to understand you because I've been there. So I, what happened is that uh, I started getting interest to refugee, calling them, educating them, telling them that everything is possible, everything is possible. And working with Hayas also has helped me really go deep to try to understand on how I can be able to mobilize refugees and uh, help them to come up with groups of being self-reliant. We started with a football team, then I started telling them to come up with band where people go and entertain, they enjoy themselves. Without, okay, even though life was hard for them, but at least let them have time to be happy. I'll just a small moment of happiness. So I created such a things. And then uh, one day, I, I'm just going to tell you how I came up with an idea of forming my organization. One day, there was an Osalama, uh, prog uh, Osalama program that happened in Kenya. It's when the Kenya government decided to send all the refugees who are in an urban area to the camp. It was a decision from the, the president of the republic. And then the refugees were forcefully taken to the camp. Like people, they, they came, they, the soldiers came to Kasarani with a lot of uh, a lot of uh, other people from the government. Then they pack refugees from the church and take them to the camp by force. Some women left their children in the house because when some people go to the church, sometimes they leave people in the house. So they left their children in the house. Husband left their wife, wives left their husband. It was very bad. So I was among the people who remained, but my friends went, so many people who were in church. That day I didn't go to church, I was sick, I was in the house. So we stayed in the community. We could not know Tante because if that's our government decision, even any NGO could not come for their rescue. It was very tough. So we had to decide on how to support the children who stayed in their house on their own. So I had to call refugees, asking whoever have something small, let's bring them. So we collected some clothes, we collected some food, some little money. Then we were going house by house to found refugees who are left in their house to give them food. That way I understand the power of, pe of people who seem not to have nothing. Because we could imagine that because I'm a refugee, I have nothing. But we collected a lot of food coming from refugees, a lot of clothes coming from refugees. Then a child came to me. He was a nine years old ch child. It's called Leslie. I remember the name of that child. She came for me with 10, well, 10 Kenyan shillings. It's a very small money, but it was very meaningful for a nine year child. She, she told me, Bahati, can you give this to someone who may need it? I asked my mommy to give it as an offering in church but I want to give it to you, so you give it to someone who needs it. When I took the, the, the 10 Kenya shilling, it became, we even had it as a campaign for organization, to campaign for one 10 shilling campaign, asking people to give us just one 10 shilling campaign. Then he was saying, if you, if you, can, if you can collect 10 shilling from people around Kenya who may be willing, that money will use it then to buy food, 
That's how the idea came for an organization. So I ask refugees questions. I call them in church. When I call them, there were like 350 refugees who just accepted my call. They came in a Bethel church, so I asked them questions. I say, you people know that um, the resettlement country are receiving a very lower percent of refugees, like one percent of refugees are being resettled. And others, what will happen to the 99% of refugees? That's what I was asking refugees. And then I asked refugees, do you believe, I know people, we're not all going to go to America. We're not going to go to UK, all of us. There are people who will still remain here. And there are those who will be falsely, who will be needed to go back to their country. So how do you think our life is going to be? So refugees started thinking now differently. They're like, this is serious. And if I stay here for 10 years, and go back to my country. What will I be bringing there? Will, will I have something at least I've learned here that will help me to continue surviving or learning life here, there? So that's how people start thinking big. So we say the first thing we need to do is to have an English class. If they come, they learn English because the first thing you need to communicate. If you need to tell your story, if you need to earn a living, you need to know how to communicate. So if you just start in, I a center I called for um, some people who can teach English starting by myself so we started teaching refugees educating some of our times for free and then um, when people starting understanding our idea we wanted to register our organization as a CBO we were, it, it was a group but later on we wanted it to be a CBO then we went to the local leader we registered the organization, it was recognized, we were given the certificate, starting operating officially. So then we had we hired a house where we were starting giving food to refugees, giving clothes to refugees, uh, using what we have to give those who do not have, and trying to make refugees believe that there's something they can do for themselves to survive. So that's what Save World is doing currently. We have a big impact nowadays, we are paying rent to refugees, and then that money comes from refugees themselves. Without, without having, no one is funding us, I'm not getting any funding from any person. But refugees are paying rent for, them, for their fellow refugees. Refugees are paying transportation for their fellow refugees to access different appointments. Like now we are offering counseling for refugees. And the, another thing, refugees are, uh, are having, we, we've given some refugees, like on Monday people will be seeing some of the people we gave money, and now they're doing good in businesses. We have a guy called Tony, he has a very good hotel. Then he was given just small money, refugees themselves. The hotel is, they give money for refugees, they're serving in the community, and then they become very, they, they are, he's even hiring now more than four refugees work for him. There's a guy called Marcel also, he has the same thing. We even bought a border border for one of the refugees who works as a taxi driver. And then those are all the work that Save World is doing. And then we have also come up with a, um, a program of, uh, of, of lending money to refugees. They, we put some money together, then the refugee will come and lend that money. Of course they bring back the money with the interest. Then we use that interest to give, the next time give another person and that is very growing, and the refugees are coming to us, maybe they want to do something, they say, I need 5,000 for my business, then we give them 5,000, and then at the end of the time, after, after one month, it just brings 
500 add to that 5,000. Then we give it to another person. Then that's how we come up with idea. And then it's a pay it forward type system, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, it's yeah. a pay forward. And then all those ideas come from refugees themselves. We always do panel every month to decide people want to help in the community. And then we call refugees from like a, every community is represented. We call two Congolese, two Rwandese, two Burundian, two Somalis, two Sudanese and two Ethiopian. They sit down on a table and then we discuss about the sensitive cases we have in the community. Yeah. If we have like 10 slots or 20 slots, then we divide them among those all communities. And then every time feel like that is their family. Then if you do, they will trust us very much because for us, they even give us the information and don't give to anybody because they know that we understand them. The thing that other people will say, we need go in big offices and tell, but people will not understand them. But us, because we've been there, you don't have to go through a lot. We understand the situation more than any other person. Basically, that's what we I mean, it's amazing what you do. Is it treated a bit like a waiting room, or do you try and make people see Kenya as home and and turn it into more than just a waiting room to whether or not they're going back home or on on somewhere else? Yeah, that 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 is by the that is what is one of the most things that we are doing to make people integrate, to do a, 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 a coexistence between the local community and the refugees community. Because if I'm in Kenya now, this is my home. As far as I'm not, I've not yet returned to my country, and I don't know whether I'll be given, I'll be getting the chance to be resettled to America or anywhere else. Kenya is my country as for now. So that's why Save World Trust is for everybody, even the local, the host community. We support even Kenya. Yeah. You must be so proud of how far it's come from just an idea. Yeah, you know, every, the, 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 every, I always care about the genesis of everything. So the, the, the genesis of Save World is very meaningful. Than, than it's, it's not like people who sit down and think about coming out with a project. It's not that way. This is a thing that, that nature itself it just came naturally. And it's, being, it's growing like every single day. And then Kenyans are embracing it because even now we're hiring them. They are becoming they are our members because we have membership. We have we have registered more than 250 members nowadays who are our, our active members who contribute monthly one dollar to our bank account because we to we we we, we don't we don't keep we, people send our their contribution directly to our bank account and that bank you can send your one dollar from all over the world. It's just direct to our account. Then we, we've um, we've got our, we have um, M-Pesa. There's an M-Pesa here system where we talk about our, our what we do. Then we ask everyone to just donate one dollar. So and then Kenyan are giving more than even how refugees are giving that dollar because they know what it's doing to them. Yeah, it's very very inspiring, and we are happy for that. Yeah. You consider Kenya as home yeah. now, yeah. and you've met your beautiful wife. Tell me a bit about your, your, your love story. <laughs> okay, you know, being alone in this life is, is, is always bad. You need to, after I've lost everything, after I've lost everyone, I needed to start a life and just come up with my, just bring back my family to life. That is from my wife. Yeah, and then she's a very encouraging. Okay, she's also a refugee, an orphan refugee who lost like everyone. She does not have everyone. She came with her, her two brothers who were hijacked here in Kenya and were taken back to Congo. 
and the information we had is that they may have been killed there. So they were very young. They were only 14 and uh, no, no, they were only 12 and 8 years old. So they were they were killed. Of course, of course, of course they also wanted her, but they could not. At that time, she was a bit when you were hijacked, she was a bit behind. So they just hijacked the literal one, and then I was able to escape. So I knew her when she was she came here when she was still a minor. And then we knew each other for a while. Then later on, when she turned age, when I started dating her when she was 18. Then now she's my life wife and she's my everything. I really love her so much. And uh, we always have time together to talk about our past. But the most inspiring thing is that we don't let our story discourage us from moving forward. It's a really motivation for us to go forward. Our stories motivate us more than any other thing. And then for me to be able to, to talk to this, my fellow refugees, to inspire them, to show them that they can do better, I need to be strong. Because if I cry with them, they're not going to be helpful. But when they see me, they see how someone can turn into being a, bit, a brighter person. Like now, if you, if you, you would have seen me like in the last few years, in the Bahati I am today, there are two different people. From the street, now I have a family, now I can pay my rent. I think this is something believe that every human being has a potential to change his life as long as you have a positive attitude. Yeah. What do you think needs to happen to change and how do you see the future sort of turning turning out? I think um, media should continue raising awareness about refugees. Don't, not talking about refugee stories superficially. Let's just go deep and understand the history from the source. People, come, people mostly come from UK or America. Then they talk to the, to the big offices to hear the, 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 just the story from uh, not from deep inside. I would suggest that they should be coming on the ground where refugee lives, enter their houses and find out and see, not only read on what people write. Because when people go for interviews, they don't carry, some, some people are not good about expressing themselves. Remember this point, I, I, I indicated most of them, don't even know how to tell their problem. They don't even know. But at least when you come to the ground, you'll see and know. People who are good at expressing themselves are the ones who are getting advantages because they are eloquent. They are, it's not everyone who is eloquent. The people who are shy, the people who know how to talk, the people who are who fears, and they, ha they have stories, but they don't know even how to bring it out. So I think um, organization and big boards should be coming to the, where the problems are and try to find out what refugees are facing because refugees are going through a lot that people do not know. The Fiji have story. And then, people who are helping refugees, I'm grateful to organization, they are doing what they can do, but they're doing a little compared to the needs that we have here. People are suffering, are suffering every day. We are saying this because, like we who run, were running CBOs, we live with these people, we are with them during the weekend. We don't close our office on the weekend like other organizations. We are there on Saturday, we are there on Sunday. We see cries, we see the reality, we see how people, how children eat only ugali with, without a soup. Children, that is their food. And then they put water, they put salt in water. 
This is happening in Nairobi. I'm not creating, sorry. I'm telling you the fact. If you want, I can take you to the house where people are eating ugali. Then they put water, salt in the water. Then they take ugali, they put in water, and then they, they eat. And that is their life. And then when they have gotten that thing, they are happy because they have eaten such a food. So I believe, uh, I, I went to a house. Let me tell you this story. It was a very touching story that I will never forget in my mind. I went to a house at a place called Gidrai. That house, I was doing a visit. We were doing an outreach from, with people from Savoir Trust. I entered the house and found a woman with her four daughters. She was a single woman with her four daughters. The husband had been killed back in Congo. So, and then I saw the pieces of material, the bitenge, which were hanged on the window. They had cut them like handkerchief on different pieces. So when I saw them, I asked them, what is this for? And then uh, a girl was shy. She didn't want to reply to me. Then I was like, uh, I thought maybe they wanted, only want to tell me. Then the mother said, tell him, it's okay, tell him. Then she said, this is what we use when we're in the period. So we take those papers, we use them, then we wash them at night. Then we also wash them after the three days of our period to use them from the next month. So they are where they cannot even afford to buy a sanitary towels. And then I believe these people who will really like to donate the sanitary towels for these women, but they have, not heard, they have never heard this story. This is the true story up to now. People are cutting, taking pieces of material to use for their period. Because I remember the time someone came to our organization, you know, he was seated on the table. Then you know, he stood up, there was blood on his table. So I knew myself that he was, he's, she's on the period. That is the blood. Because the paper, the, the, the tissue that he's using cannot be able to, you get. Those are the things that we are facing and is happening here. And, uh, I'm telling you, those who can be able to express themselves properly, who cannot be shy to go and tell them they will go to organization, maybe be given one or two. But when we, they're with us, they open up and tell us their problem, and we really go forward and help them with that. So now, nowadays, even we are asking women in the community refugees, if you buy sanitary towels, if you buy two, just bring, a, bring one to us. If you can afford two, just use one and give us another one for that person. So we also distribute sanitary towels for refugees. But still, we don't cover everyone. We, we help very little. But we have a, a lot of who come to, to the office, then we tell them we no longer have sanitary towels. And then they just go home very sad. And then we feel also sad and very frustrating because we cannot help our people. Refugee being considered people who are half human, like the people who, who cannot do anything. But uh, I know myself and I know my colleague and I know how refugees have been contributing. I remember for the previous research that was done by people from Oxford, it showed that refugees are really contributing economically for the well-being of the country and uh, even they are giving their talent and then it's being taken for granted and sometimes even people, those people will not even paid well because they're like refugees. But I'm telling you, most of the office, maybe across the office, because of not having people who interpret for them, because they need interpreters. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, that is labor. That is something refugees are doing. And uh, they're also, refugees are coming up with different activities. Like if you've gone to Africa, you've seen refugees having activity, hiring Kenyans. Same in the world, you have refugees who work for us, who do things for us. We have even, I think refugees are, should be considered as people who can really do a lot. 
most of them are uneducated. They have limited capacity of thinking very fast. But I believe it's just because of not being able to go to school because most of them have not been able to go to school. But I believe, apart from that, they are also doing so many other things that is very inspiring that we know because we, like if I tell you, like in, in, in different um, activities that are refugee house shops, they have saloon, they have uh, so many restaurants, they have bars, they have so many things that they do. And then out there, the other people who are talented, okay, those who can play football, football that, but they don't have a ground where they can do that. And maybe if they could be given a chance to spread their talent or go there and sing and be given just a, a right like any other person, I believe they can go far. That's what has not been happening and it's really, really frustrating for refugees. Like let me say, if you're qualified and you're working for an organization here, you cannot be paid as Kenyan because you are a refugee. Just because you're a refugee, you cannot be paid because you don't have a work permit, no matter how professional you are. But I think money you cannot be given. You just give you an allowance to be able to care for your transport and communication. But you cannot save anything. Yeah, that's how it is.